What started at 68 is down to 16. We're going to get into what it all means with M. Adler, Missy Hydrick, and I'll tell you all about what this new partnership means with the next. You're here at Lockdown Women's Basketball. You are Locked On Women's Basketball, your daily podcast on women's basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And we are here live talking to you about women's basketball every day. That's right. Our partnership with The Next, and you can follow us at The Next Hoops or thenexthoops.com. We have over 100 reported pieces just this month. We cover the game 24-7, 365. And so I am extremely grateful to Nick Angstadt, to Ross Jackson, to seeing what this can be. David Locke, who first gave me this opportunity now almost six years ago, taking women's basketball coverage to the next level. We're going to be here five days a week starting April 11th. But before we do that, we've got a tournament to cover. So I talked to M. Adler about NC State, all things in the Bridgeport region. Uh, Missy Heidrich's going to be down in Wichita for us this weekend. And we had a conversation about Louisville, Tennessee, South Dakota, Michigan, going to be really interesting all weekend long. Lockdown Women's Basketball is brought to you by Bet Online, BetOnline.net, place where you can get all of your sports gambling needs met. But for me personally, as somebody who believes there needs to be equality in terms of women's basketball compared to men's basketball, that matters not just in terms of overall coverage, but in, in relative to how fans can bet on the games too, if that's something they're looking to do. South Carolina, very interesting. The odds on favor to win right now. Uh, UConn right behind there at a plus 325 where I see the value Quite frankly, Maryland has a great matchup coming up against Stanford. Uh, if Maryland prevails, I think they have a clear path to possibly winning it all. Maryland's a plus 5,000 right now. So that really stood out to me. Make sure you go to betonline.net. Check things out. You can get it on your desktop. You can get it on mobile. Betonline.net, where the game starts. And we are back here at Lockdown Women's Basketball. I am very excited to be joined by M. Adler, who does basically everything at the site. I mean, M. does uh, a daily briefing, which is just must read. And I have the delight of editing at the start of our day. Uh, M. covers the Seattle Storm for us. M. covers the WNBA draft. I, I, I don't really understand how you do everything you do, M., but thank you for all of it. Well, thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's wonderful to expand my ever-growing list of responsibilities. Well, let's start with another one of them, which is that you were at NC State this past weekend. NC State plays in a mid-major conference, right? The Atlantic Coast Conference. Is that correct? Oh, uh, let's see. I believe the ACC led the country in NCAA tournament berths. Oh, that's nice. So, so making strides towards the Big East. I'm glad to hear it. Um, but, you know, our our Conference battles aside, uh, what did you see out of NC State this weekend? The offense looked to be damn near unstoppable. Yeah, they are clicking on all cylinders. One thing that was really nice 
uh, that they had, which they hadn't had for a little while, was Gaiman Johnson was just making it rain from the field. She went, uh, she went five for ten in the game at, at hit all five for threes after basically spending about two months hitting nothing, which, I mean, that's huge for them. That takes them from a six, seven player rotation into an eight player rotation with an elite scoring guard coming off the bench. Yeah. And it just puts them in position to do things that they haven't been able to do before. Everything's clicking on all cylinders, like I said. Elisa Kunain is – she looks better than she ever has, and she looks just more stable and better on both ends. Mm-hmm. Every, their guard play has been incredible. Reina Perez is on a tear, and, you know, this is the right time to look like that. Yeah, Kunain only had to play about 13 minutes, if uh, memory serves, in the Kansas State game. Do you think that's a huge advantage for her to come in rested, coming into these vital games this weekend in Bridgeport? I think for sure. I think I, I think for sure. It certainly can't hurt them. You know, you have three or four days off. I think most teams are going to be fairly decently rested, but I don't think it could possibly hurt. And plus, it gave a lot of successful minutes to her backup, Camille Hobby, mm-hmm. and that's just more experience. You know, you talked about Diamond Johnson, and obviously we had Diamond Johnson up here. I, I'm coming to you from Jersey, and uh, Diamond Johnson was here at Rutgers, looked like the next big star coming out of Rutgers. And when you look at uh, Diamond's freshman year, uh, she really put up numbers that were comparable to any combo guard in the country, really, this side of Paige and Caitlin. So why do you think it is that NC State has her coming off the bench, and do you think her ceiling remains as high as it looked, at least, you know, from my view, uh, after her freshman year? So, so first things first, she's coming off the bench because NC State is starting a fifth or sixth year grad student at point guard in Reina Perez. She's incredibly steady. She's a really good shooter, and her floor game is excellent. And, you know, she just has that experience with the team. She, this is her second year there, mm-hmm. and there's no reason not to have her start. At the, the two spot, you've got Kai Crutchfield, who is who is one of the premier 3D players in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hits about she hits close to 40% from three and is also one of the better perimeter defenders um, that there is. And then Diamond Johnson is just too small to play the three, not that J.K. Bryan turn at the three isn't good anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by having her come off the bench, they get that scoring punch in the second place, while also not having to sacrifice any of the lineup chemistry that's been here for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, and to your second question, yeah, her, uh, her, her ceiling is as, high, is as high as it was last year for sure. I mean, there just aren't guards who can, who have that crossover, have that step back, yeah. and who have that passing vision while being able to, sh- while being able to shoot as well as she can. Yeah, I mean, Diamond Johnson just sky's the limit. I, I totally agree with you. Now, NC State faces a really interesting matchup. Uh, you know, again, uh, it's uh, a battle of mid-majors. You've got NC State versus Notre Dame, two ACC teams. You know, really good to see plucky little programs like that coming through here and getting the opportunity to play. Both of them have been absurd off the charts offensively. Notre Dame scored 108 points in the second round win. You know, what are we looking at in terms of what this game is? Is it a 98-96 final, or do you think that NC State – you know, which clearly has been one of the best teams in the country all year, joking aside uh, about the mid-major status, uh, has the clear upper hand in your view. So just to start off is where the game is projected. For Hoopstats has the, the pregame spread at about 12 points, whereas Vegas opened around seven points in favor of NC State, and that line has actually moved a point towards NC State since it's opened, mm-hmm. which is basically to say that, you know, to varying degrees of confidence, people who are smart and do good math appear to think NC State is a multi-possession favorite. And I don't think there's much reason to doubt that. 
Yeah. But these teams, these teams played before in the, um, teams played before in the regular season, obviously both being part of the ACC. Notre Dame actually won. It was a three point win back in February. Mm-hmm. But these teams, these teams have changed a little bit since Notre Dame has been a little up and down all season, mostly up, sometimes little skids here and there. Whereas NC State has mostly just been right on top of everything with an occasional slip here and there. So it really comes down to what Notre Dame is able to get out of its starters. Notre Dame does not play with much of a bench in the first place, but NC State has gone from a team that was in that construction to a team that goes to its bench and a team that can play in a lot of versatile ways, bringing a more traditional four off the bench to replace Kayla Jones, who who starts at the four, she's more of a big wing. They like to play Diamond Johnson and Raina Perez together a lot. So you're looking at a very adaptable team in them versus Notre Dame, who when they click, they click excellently and they have incredible chemistry and they'll uh, open the game against Oklahoma uh, 43 to 15 after like 12 minutes. Yeah. You don't know necessarily which Notre Dame you're going to get until you're about five minutes into the game. But with NC State, it's just about keeping it steady and being able to make sure that they are recycling possessions and that they are able to work through whatever Notre Dame comes to them. Because Neil Ivey is a great coach, and she's going to have the team ready. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily want to you know, take those lines I talked about in the beginning and really, really hammer Notre Dame. But I think it can be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I, I I think both of these games are fascinating to me. You know, the other in the Bridgeport region uh that's going to be played on Saturday. And just to set the scene for you, it's eleven thirty AM is the first game, the NC State versus Notre Dame uh Eastern time on Saturday. And then at two you've got uh Yukon versus Indiana. And of course the winner of those two games will match up on Monday night in Bridgeport with a trip to the final four on the line. I'm curious how you see the Indiana versus UConn matchup. I know you and I have dramatically different views as far as where UConn is at this point in the season, but just relative to Indiana, who survived a very tough matchup against Princeton in the round of 32. So I don't think that there's a lot of teams that are well-constructed to give UConn a, a big run for its money. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly they drew one in the round of 32 with UCF. And people have mixed opinions on whether that game was good. I was thoroughly entertained. Now I understand why people enjoy wrestling. As far as Indiana. Wait, can I just I jump in on that? Because I, I, that was such basketball defensive purity, right? And so, I listen, I grew up on Big East men's basketball. I grew up on, like, the t- period of time where now I'm an old, right? So I, I, I was around for when the Big East even tried to go to, like, six fouls. Which I just love. It's just like them, the Big East basically saying, like, we want there to be more physical contact. We want to encourage and allow that to happen. I mean, I'm kind of sad they went away from it. But point being that that is fun. That is fun for me. That is my wheelhouse. That is like Charles Oatley era New York Knicks, right? That is, that is what UCF plays. And UCF plays that everywhere they go. And there are all these people who are like, you know, oh, well, UConn showed that they were going to struggle. Uh, because they struggled against UCF's defense. Everyone struggles against UCF's defense. You could put a front court of Sylvia Fowles, Brianna Stewart, and Elena Deladon on the floor, and a backcourt of Sue and Diana, and that team would score 65 against uh, a KH uh, defense. That's just my personal opinion. But that's my thinking about the round of 32 game we watched. Yes, it was endlessly entertaining. Yeah, no, I 
I genuinely thought it was uh, really entertaining, despite, you know, there were some drawbacks to it. There were also some, you know, I think teams are all going to struggle with UCF's defense. I think different teams are going to struggle in different ways. Um, I think what it did expose to a certain extent wasn't that, you know, UConn is necessarily going to struggle against top defense, but against one that that's one that is that good, which I would say UCF is the best defense this side of South Carolina. As I see it, it, it showed that they don't necessarily have the talent to just go through the defense hmm. with an offense in the way that they could in years past. You're playing players in the rotation like Olivia Nelson Adada, Evina Westbrook, Nick Mull, Leah Edwards, who aren't, who aren't the kind of scorers or Swiss Army knives on offense that you kind of had in years past hmm. where you can just say, you know, this is going to work as is. And I think that sort of, it, that sort of leads a little bit into why I think Indiana is not, I don't think they're going to win, but I think they're a relatively tougher matchup. They basically play a six-player rotation. Then they're all experienced, so they're not going to falter just because they're facing a tougher scheme. They know together how to, they know how to work together through adversity. Mm-hmm. I think um, having Nicole Cardano Hillary, um, that's Indiana's, I, I guess basically their two guards, they, they, they have a, their backcourt can really, you can consider them any position between one and three. It's usually a three-guard set, and everyone does one through three at different times. Pretty much, yeah. And so Nicole Cadonio Hillary is basically the uh, on-ball pass defender. Um, and I think, and I think she is, she and Grace Berger, who is basically their point guard, have a great complimentary pairing. You can throw at Paige Beckers, um, and then have the other one just sort of scrape over to whoever is, um, whoever's the next list guard, whether we're talking Azzy Fudd, Christian Williams, both of them are well equipped to take both of them on. Mm-hmm. I don't think UConn is necessarily the best equipped to take advantage of Indiana's weaknesses. Um, like, you know, Alexa Gould Bay, they're, uh, they're uh, big at the four for limits. Holm, Mackenzie Holmes, their center's defense is, it's not great, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I think Indiana's pretty good at their hedging scheme, and that's probably the best way to stop UConn from getting their scores downhill. Um, and for the most part, I would expect as a thought to have fewer just wide open backside catch and shoot opportunities than she's had in recent games. Yeah. So I think that, I think that'll slow the game down in the way that Indiana wants it to, and at least give some opportunities. A- AZ needs to have a big game. You know, she had four threes against Central Florida, and she's going to have to do something similar. Four for four. That, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was obviously the difference in that game, which turned out to be a five point margin. And so you know, between her, I, I do. Wonder what you get out of Olivia Nelson Adota. I know UConn fans do as well. Uh, you know, I, Liv is somebody who's worked hard at improving her game. Uh, and I, I don't know that we've necessarily yet seen the type of uh, shooting range that allows things to open up in the middle, uh, which has been something Liv has been working on steadily since her freshman year, quite frankly. Uh, but the other part of it, and you know, you spoke, she didn't even mention uh, Allie Patberg. Uh, the fact that she's in her 31st year at Indiana, which is the kind of continuity you very rarely see in a college or, uh, quite frankly, uh, even in a corporation where you're given a gold watch. And so for Allie Patbird to be there as long as she is and to help steady things is one thing. But Grace Berger, I, I, I don't know. I run out of superlatives when it comes to Grace Berger and what she's able to do from a shooting, from a passing perspective, from an understanding of, like, what is necessary for Indiana to win. Grace Berger does, it's not a surprise that Grace Berger hit what turned out to be essentially the game winning shot against Princeton. Grace Berger knows what she's doing. If Grace Berger went into the WNBA draft 
this year, and she has already said she's not. She's waiting another year. She would go. Unfortunately. In, uh, well, fortunately for Indiana, unfortunately for the WNBA, yes. But she would go, I believe, in the top half of the first round because there is an understanding and appreciate. Ah, I saw that look. But I'm telling you, there's an understanding and appreciation. I'll, I'll agree on the first rounder. First round, but but should go, I, I'll put it this way. The WNBA rightly understands that Grace Berger is going to be an elite player at the next level. And I would argue that Grace Berger will be one of the six most impactful players uh, who is currently playing uh, if she had come out this year. I think, I think she's that level of player at the WNBA level. I'm very excited to see Grace Berger at the next level. I just think it's going to be an absolute classic. Uh, I think this is going to be the best game in the Bridgeport Regional because I honestly believe if UConn gets past uh, the round of 16 against Indiana, UConn's going to beat either Notre Dame or NC State. And I think it's going to be uh, by a 10-point or more margin. That's what I'm prepared to say here today. What do you think of that? I think that is an, I think that's a relatively insane take. Indiana, <laughs> Indiana and NC State are entirely different tiers of teams. We're yeah. talking about... We're talking about a, we're talking about NC State, which is a unanimous top three, top four team in the country. This is Indiana, which is a host, which hosted games, deservedly so, and has not touched the top five or six since the, the preseason polls. Which, look, I like Indiana. And Grace Berger, like you mentioned, she's fantastic. She's got one of the best floor games in the entire country. She's a really solid defender, excellent help side defender. She's basically going to shoot nine for 17 every single game and not going to turn the ball over much. Mm-hmm. The problem is, between Patberg, who I will mention just for listeners who don't know, Ali Patberg has literally set the record for the most amount of time spent in college in women's basketball history. Between her and Cardano Hillary and, to a lesser extent, Alexa Goulbang, they're going to shoot the same way every game. Yeah. Sometimes each of them scores 20 points. Sometimes each of them scores four points. You don't really know what you're going to get, as opposed to UConn's offense, who, you know, I think you're not going to get four or five players scoring 20 points. You, mm-hmm. uh, but they are definitely more consistent. So I think that's something to look out for in the game. And if they advance, I, NC, their game against NC State is going to be great. I would love that matchup. Um, although I would definitely not be betting uh, UConn to take a 10-point spread. I think UConn will win that game. I think they will win it relatively comfortably with a Final Four on the line, playing in front of their home-ish crowd. It will be essentially a home crowd in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But I, it's we just travel. They do. They do. Listen, people are going to be all over me about this on the NC State side, and rightly so. But that is that is where I see it, and it will be interesting. Uh, and certainly I have a lot of respect for Westmore and what he's doing. Uh, I just think that is a, a uniquely difficult matchup for NC State and UConn. Oh, to be your finalist, Westmore. How old were you in 2007? Probably seven. Okay. All right. I have two children now, one of whom is about to turn 12. Um, I had zero children back in 2007. Uh, I had been married a year, a newlywed. We're now an old married couple going on 16 years. That was the last time UConn didn't make the Final Four. The next time that I want to say that I think UConn's not making the Final Four will be after they fail to make the Final Four. Someone's going to have to prove to me that they can keep UConn out of the Final Four before I see it happening. That's just my that's my UConn take. That's my relatively insane, as you put it, UConn take. 
Um, take me through it last thing uh, before we go. Just uh, do you think that the ACC, you know, having made these strides, has an opportunity to move into the Big East class come next year? Hmm. That's a good question. Here, here's what I'll say. UConn left the American for the Big East this year. Yes. And I don't have UConn's schedule up, but I think it's but I think it's safe to say that they played over 20 games against the Big East this year, correct? Mm-hmm. This year, the American Conference has played UConn twice. Across the entire season, the American and the Big East have played the same number of games within three possessions of UConn as the Big East. Mm-hmm. The American, so you're talking specifically... Two games. two games. The American is two for two in keeping games within three possessions against UConn. The Big East is two for 20-something. Which which teams are those in the American? Was that Tulsa who held them to within three possessions? Was that East Carolina, or was it the two really good teams in the American? It was USF back in November. Very good team. Very good team, Jose Fernandez, NGA tournament team, and then UCF. Mm-hmm. Yes, criminally underseeded. I should not have been a seven. Ridiculous that yeah. it was a seven. Absolutely. Big East had four tournament teams. That's Somehow, speech, yeah. That speaks to UConn's greatness. One of them got actually clobbered by Dayton. They did. They did. That was a rough. That was a rough night for DePaul. Villanova played very tough into the second round. Beat BYU onto the second round. Yeah. Played it Michigan. Really hot time this season. In Ann Arbor. In Ann Arbor. No, got healthy. Got healthy. Maddie Severs was back in at full strength. And he's Maddie still. Severs has been healthy since December. November. And December relative to March for these teams, they're, they're a lifetime. They're a lifetime of difference. They are Villanova's on the rise. I, that, that's a program I love. We know. the same thing from Moon Urson's Tulane. That is very true. That is a very good point. All right. M. Adler, how do people follow you? Because they should, because it, you are a ride on Twitter, by the way. So obviously, su- support the next, follow our stuff. You can read all my daily briefings, which are essentially uh, six to eight hundred words that I write at two in the morning every day. And you can see exactly how delirious I am at those hours. More importantly, you can see how delirious I am at all hours of the day on Twitter <laughs> at em underscore adler. That's m underscore adler. Um, I might be tweeting about the Denver Nuggets, but probably I'm just tweeting about whatever random game I'm rewatching that day along with various highlights of Emily Anxious passing or Zaya Cook hitting stupid shots. And thank you for shining the light on lesser conferences like the ACC. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And we're back here at Lockdown Women's Basketball, and I'm very excited to be joined by Missy Heydrich, our national NCAA correspondent, talking about all things college basketball, we have a lot of different things to get into, uh, including uh, coaching change in terms of the Wichita bracket, uh, where Missy's going to be. Missy, so great to be with you. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much. So let's talk first of all about Wichita and just take us through, like, what is the city like? You know, what is the experience going to be like as you go there for uh, what is the regional, uh, the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight? Well, I think the nice part about Wichita is it is easily accessible for a lot of people, you know, so you can fly directly into Wichita, you know, Southwest American, everything. So folks that are coming from Louisville and Tennessee, et cetera, it's going to be easy access. Michigan fans coming from the upper, you know, the upper peninsula, et cetera. 
they're going to be able to get there. It's an easy drive. It's right down I-35, literally down the middle of the state of Kansas. And so I think for most folks, the accessibility is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The Interest Bank Arena is um, somewhat new. It was built a few years ago down there just as, as a draw. Uh, Wichita State plays some of their games there, even though they still play on their home um, in their home arena. And I just think that the downtown is a, a great place for people to be able to go. There's, um, you know, there's restaurants and bars and areas for people to, to stay busy. So I think it's going to have a very welcoming atmosphere. Wichita has always been great about hosting events. People enjoy going there, um, concerts, athletics, whatever it is. So I think everyone that comes is going to have a great time. And I think the basketball is going to be fantastic. Jalen Agnew, uh, the terrific basketball player, now with the Atlanta Dream, spotlighted Wichita in a thread, which I just loved. I love that kind of the home, hometown pride. Was there one thing that Jalen said where you're like, oh, okay, well, that's a restaurant I'm not going to miss while I'm there? <laughs> no, I don't know if I – it's been a while since I've actually been to downtown and, like, walked around and seen it. So I do know that there's a couple little hidden gems down there, which mm-hmm. I'm certain – of these folks are going to find, um, but you will not be without good food. And anybody that's passing through on I-35, you can stop off in Kansas City and get your barbecue on the way. That's what okay. I would say. Very nice. And so at J-A-Y-L-Y-N underscore Agnew, A-G-N-E-W, if you want that full guide as well. But, yes, the barbecue along the way, that is yes. a clutch idea. Perfect. And then, of course, there's, in addition to the barbecue and the restaurant, I understand there's basketball as well being played on Saturday. And, the two matchups are really tasty and in different ways. You know, you have number one Louisville with number four Tennessee, a couple of blue bloods. And then, of course, you got number three Michigan taking on number 10. I'm saying number 10, but clearly should not have been a 10 seed, South yeah. Dakota. So in terms of what are you looking for out of Louisville versus Tennessee, what do you think is going to help decide which of those two teams moves on to the Elite Eight? Well, I think it's really interesting when you look at the Tennessee-Louisville matchup because, you know, Tennessee can be very, um, you know, they run a lot of sets. And so, and they can slow things down. They've won a lot of games with their defense. They're still kind of molding themselves because of all of the injuries and the upheaval within their roster that they've had. And I think Kelly Harper has had to kind of be a, a master of chess in terms of moving people around and figuring out what those lineups look like. But on the flip side, you've got Louisville, and they'll just go up and down as much as they want. They're just going to go as they can, and they defend too. So this could very well be high scoring, but it could also just be a slug match in terms of defensive philosophies and how you get people stopped. I would look for Louisville. They're going to want to get out in transition. They know that they can attack this Tennessee team, force them into some easy buckets, whether that's turning it up with their defense. Um, I think right now they're they're causing almost 20 turnovers a game. So if you can force Tennessee into turning the ball over, now I've got easy runouts, and I create offense with my defense, and it gets simple. Uh, for Tennessee, this has got to be much more of, I think, a methodical half-court execution game where they've got to get those high-quality shots and then understand what the assignment sound defense is. That's really where they've been at their very best. Um, you know, you think about the big shots that were made in that Belmont game and how Belmont stayed in it. It was with their defense, too, and they just didn't give up anything easy. So I think these are great matchups, and that's what you should get in the Sweet 16 and then headed into the Elite Eight is you're yeah. looking for really good basketball. 
I mean, it's just to get this at, at the 16 level, to get, you know, blue bloods like this, to get Kelly Harper versus Jeff Walls in terms of coaching. It's just, there's a lot to be excited about. I mean, to your point, I, I, to me, the critical player in this game is Emily Angler. And the fact that, you know, she has 12 steals through two games in the NCAA tournament and Emily Angler creating havoc. Uh, grabbing rebounds and giving the opportunity, I, to me, is ultimately the matchup that I think is most difficult for Tennessee to counter. Absolutely, and she can score. You know, that's the other thing. So not only is she such a great defensive player, but she's a threat offensively. So she can pull you off the lane, maybe take you out to 15, 16 feet. So now all of a sudden you've got to make a decision about how you want to guard her. Are you going to give her that shot? Or are you going to let her put it on the floor? Uh, those are the things that Tennessee has to deal with. I think one of the X factors for Louisville is Chelsea Hall. You know, she started every game for them this season out at the guard. And so, you know, when you come from Vanderbilt where she was just a high, you know, high prolific scorer and hasn't necessarily had to be that this year, but that's experience. And as we can see in the tournament, what's happening here, experience goes a long way in these scenarios. And when you get into clutch time and having to make plays, so I think players like that can be really impactful when you get into the Sweet 16. And I think we saw that clearly with South Dakota as well, and just the level of experience they brought in with their big three, you know, shooting better than 37% from three, each of them, you know, really efficient, and just defending so well against a Baylor team that has a lot of weapons. You know, do you think that ultimately South Dakota's experience is going to carry the day here? Or do you think Michigan, who has plenty of their own, you know, Leah Brown and obviously Nas Hillman, you know, looking to play on, how do you see this matchup uh, playing out? Well, when you look at it on paper, I think these are two teams that are almost a lot. They're very much alike. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are going to say, well, are you really sure? I say, yeah, you have to start thinking about the experience factor. You take a Nas Hillman versus Hannah Shervin matchup. Well, they're both 6'2". They're both incredibly skilled. They were, are workhorses inside. They, they've been undersized post players pretty much their entire career. But mm-hmm. look at their numbers and look at what they do and look at their footwork and their ability to score. And they score through contact and traffic and they'll step out and then they'll take you off the dribble. Those are things you just don't see all the time. So now all of a sudden I start matching position for position. I think the size, you know, I thought Nikki Collin had some very interesting kind of comments or, or um, outlook on that matchup with South Dakota. You know, she said our guards at her Baylor guards, just not that big, mm-hmm. you know, so South Dakota's five ten really across the board. Well, yeah. Michigan's kind of the same way, right? So now all of a sudden we've got matchups here that look very similar and they run, these are going to be two teams that are going to run a lot of sets. You're going to see motion, tons of screening action. Um, everybody crashing the glass. They're looking for second chance opportunities when they can get out and run, they'll go. But they'll also get you in a secondary break where I'll, it's two passes, somebody's open in the corner, open three, because you don't get out and cover in time. So they're very – it's high basketball IQ. That's what I think this second game will be. Um, I just think we've got outstanding coaches in the Wichita region. These are four great coaches. I mean, I just love all of them because I think they – what they bring to the game, what their teams are built on – I mean, that's what you're looking for, um, just the quality of the players, of the people. Uh, I think this is just a stacked region of really good, good women's basketball programs. 
there's just so much depth at this point that, you know, when you get to the Sweet 16, everybody's here is yeah. significant. I, I, I totally agree with you. You know, to me, the critical difference between these two teams and, you know, we'll ultimately decide it is Michigan was fifth in the country in rebound rate. Fifth in the country. Yeah. Uh, South Dakota, 239. Now they did a very good job of limiting Baylor's edge on the boards. Baylor still, and, and this shocked me when you watch after because it just felt like Baylor didn't get any second shot opportunities, but Baylor out rebounded them, but it was only 40 to 32. You know, they were able to keep that margin and then do the other things they're able to do particularly well, you know, getting those shots. And even like you talked about the secondary break, that allows South Dakota to do as well as they did against Baylor. But if Michigan is crushing them on the boards, it's not going to matter. If Michigan can have, you know, a 20, a 20 rebound edge, then they're going to be able to blunt all the things that South Dakota does well. So I feel like that's where it's really going to be decided. And well, so, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's also, it kind of comes back to the simplicity of basketball as well. Mm-hmm. If I can make shots on one end and I can get stops on the other, now all of a mm-hmm. sudden things start to even out. And right. it can be a game of runs. We've seen in multiple games over the course of the year for Michigan, same thing, where they've gotten down, they've gotten back in, or they've gotten up big on someone. Someone's been able to creep in by knocking down some shots. Foul trouble is always a question that you're going to have to think about because these are not overly deep teams. Mm-hmm. You know, Rico has got a lot of talent on that bench, but she doesn't necessarily have to go real deep if she doesn't have if she doesn't want to. Um, now, Nas Hillman picks up one or two early. Now you got to start again. There's that chess match. I got to figure out, okay, how are we going to use this? Do you buy some time? How do you weather the storm? So it could be a game of runs, but I think you're right. I think rebounding's got to be one of those biggest things. And I noticed in the Baylor game, South Dakota just was able to be more physical and more active where they weren't necessarily, um, maybe always in the right spot, but when you force a team into tougher shots, guarded threes, guarded jumpers, fadeaways in the post, now all of a sudden that easy offensive board isn't as simple because I'm not in good position. And so when you force people and make them uncomfortable, they're out of position within the half court, and that makes a difference. South Dakota did that to Baylor. I think they're going to probably have to do the same thing against Michigan. No doubt about it. It's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to watch. Uh, before I let you go, I want to highlight another story that you did. You know, obviously women's basketball never stops. That's why we cover it 24-7, 365. And so over at Oklahoma State, there was a coaching change. J.C. Hoyt took over. Uh, and you had a really interesting piece I thought about some things J.C. had to say and some things J.C. didn't have to say. So take me through, if you could, uh, just your reactions to that. And you can obviously read read the piece over at thenexthoops.com. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, being in Big 12 country, I've been around Oklahoma State really, you know, my entire career, both as a player and as once I got out. And it is a it's a it's a program that's had a lot of historical success. You know, you go back to the Big 8 days, early Big 12. Um, Dick Halterman was the head coach and just was a, a program built on toughness. They won a lot of games. Gallagher-Iba was a, a, a very difficult place to play, especially when it was smaller. Uh, you know, only 6,000 plus, and that place was loud. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen the trajectory of this program with some talent and people that have come in. Um, and, you know, over the course of the last few years, it's, it's had its bumps and, and it's seen the kind of the ups and downs. Uh, I think this is an interesting hire for Oklahoma State on a couple notes. Number one, 
Um, this is a young coach. J.C. Hoyt turns 35 this spring. She's only been a head coach at a Division One program for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had P5 assistant experience. Um, and sometimes, you know, we know that that works. There are people out there all over the country that that, that, that kind of landscape or that um, foundation can work. Um, but I also think that there is uh, something about this Oklahoma State program that I think has a lot of um, – historical perspective to it you know they are part of a tragedy that happened in 2011 that took Kurt Budke the head coach at that time and his assistant including two others Um, and just kind of seeing Jim Littell be able to usher that program over the last 10 years through that was really amazing Mm -hmm. the one thing that I thought was missing from J.C. Hoyt's comments was she didn't really acknowledge much of that past in the history of this program when you take over a program, no matter where you are, men's, women's, it doesn't matter what sport, you are a steward of that history and of that program. All the people that came before you, the coaches, the players especially, I think it's very important for student-athletes to feel like they have a connection to their former program. Um, sometimes some people don't want that. They just want a little bit here and there. Some people want to be all in. You've got to give them a chance as alumni to do that. So I was a little bit disappointed that that was not necessarily something that she really talked a lot about. She talked a lot about herself and her family. I think she has a vision for what she wants to do at Oklahoma State. Um, But it's not going to be easy because this is the Big 12 is a tough league. And you have to be able to, number one, put together a staff that can recruit. Um, You have to have a system that people are going to buy into. I think Jenny Baranchek at Oklahoma is a great example of that. She crafted a staff of people that she said, you know, this is these are my strengths. I need people that have these strengths, puts it together. Look at them. They were a four seed and had an outstanding season. So it, it isn't always lightning in a bottle, but I do think that there's opportunity at Oklahoma State. I just think um, that maybe J.C. Hoyt missed a couple opportunities there to acknowledge um, the, the history and the success of this program. I know she wants to put her own stamp on it, completely understand that, but I think that there are some things that you always have to be cognizant of um, in those environments. Uh, no doubt. That, I no think doubt. that's really important. And, and, and the history matters. The history matters yeah. in all sports. The history particularly matters in women's sports where too often it wasn't covered properly in its time. And yeah. so making sure that yeah. we are, and I think about this a lot in terms of what we do with the next as well. And we make sure that we're backfilling as well. And everyone understands not just where we are, but where we came from. So, Absolutely. You know, and I think that, that, and coaches stepping into programs all over the country this year, and it happens every season, right? We yeah. see new change everywhere. You know, we can throw a dart and hit a place that's going to have change within their program. But then everybody has to be able to embrace what's come before them, where they've been, understand, learn from mistakes, learn from, you know, whether that was too much emphasis on in-state recruiting and not enough out, or, you know, we went too heavy on the portal and didn't take care of the high school kids in our area that we should have gotten. You know, people have to make those adjustments, and those things are going to be done year to year. Mm-hmm. But history and where you have, where you've been doesn't leave you. It comes with you, and you have to kind of manage all of that um, when you take over a program. Well, Missy Hydrick, I always learn from you, past, present, and in the future. Really glad you're here with us uh, on, this, on this episode. Thanks for being here. Just the last thing, how do people follow you? Obviously, they can read your work at The Next Hoops, but how can they follow you on Twitter? Because you are a must-follow. 
I am at Missy Hydric on Twitter, and I will be at the Wichita Regional um, this weekend, so trying to do some updates and stories and that kind of thing. So we'll catch a little bit of everything, um, maybe even a few random musings, because I'm a big fan of pep bands, and I think fans are the best part of the game. So you never know what you'll find. Yeah, I, I am <laughs> in pep band as well. I totally agree with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.